welcome to Anthropologforeningens podcast and the series called Anthropological Happy Hour. The episodes of this series are based on the recordings of the Happy Hour events, which the Anthropological Association of Denmark co-hosts with the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University. The aim of the event is to honor the classic anthropological genre, the monograph. So if you were not able to attend the event or if you missed a detail, we're glad to take you back for an interesting afternoon in the name of anthropology. In this episode, you will meet Ayo Valberg, professor in the Department of Anthropology at Copenhagen University, who presents his monograph published in 2018 and titled Good Quality, the Routinization of Sperm Banking in China. Critical comments and questions are given by Laura Indal Naune, researcher at VIVE, the Danish Center for Social Science Research, and also PhD and visiting researcher at the Department of Public Health at Copenhagen University. The event was chaired by Janice Pedersen, who here welcomes both audiences and key speakers. So please join us in the exploration of IOS monograph, Good Quality. Enjoy! So on behalf of uh, the Danish Association of Anthropologists, welcome to this monographic happy hour on good quality, the routinization of sperm banking in China in China, by Ayo Valberg. Um, his current research project is the vitality of disease, quality of life in the making, or vital, which focuses on empirically studying how quality of life is assembled, mobilized, and negotiated, and practiced in complete medical settings. Um, he's a member of the research groups Health and Life Conditions, uh, as well as Technology and Political Economy. Um, his re- research fields include the making of quality of life, uh, selective reproduction, and traditional and alternative medicine. Um, and we're very grateful to have him here with us today before he jets off to China to present his book to 300 people on Wednesday. <coughs> Um, we're also really grateful to have uh, Laura Indel Naune with us today as a discussant. And Laura is a researcher at VIVE, the Danish Center of Applied Social Science, um, and is also a visiting researcher at the Department of Public Health at the University of Copenhagen, uh, where she's assistant professor at the Section for Health Services Research. Um, Laura's current research explores how personal medicine emerges and is practiced and experienced in the field of diabetes and in classic clinical genetics. Uh, She's part of the Personalized Medicine in the Welfare State, um, or Me in We project as well, which is led by Professor Mida Simpson. Her primary research focuses on medical anthropology and medical science and technology studies. Um, especially on how the introduction of new uh, medical technology and changing health policies shapes the way um, that medical care and decision-making is carried out, with a focus on Denmark. But the reason we're here today is to discuss Ayo's uh, book, Good Quality, The Routinization of Sperm Banking in China. Um, And the book focuses on... Sperm banking in China, which uh, started approximately 30 years ago, um, and today there are 22 sperm banks which can't keep up with the great demand that there is um, 
and their warning of a national sperm crisis. Um, so Good Quality explores some of the issues behind the crisis, um, including how men experience donation and how sperm is made available. So without further ado, please welcome Ayo to tell us about his book. Thanks so much, Janice, and thanks to the Association, Anthropological Association, and thanks for everyone for uh, stopping by. So I will try to kind of convey the, the, the core argument of, of the book and before that uh, give you a sense of why I started the project and um, what my kind of personal, uh, let's say, uh, agenda or mission has been. Yeah, so let me start by asking a question. So how should we as anthropologists uh, uh, research the problem of infertility, whether it's in China, in Denmark, or anywhere else? Um, so, uh, of course, there are many ways one might do this. And if we could put it like this traditionally, I would say um, if we think about an anthropology of reproduction, an anthropology of infertility, then uh, to borrow Marsha Inhorn, who really is one of the pioneers in, in, in this field, um, we could study it by following the quest for conception that many couples embark on and then realize that they have uh, troubles uh, along the way. And so in China, such a quest would absolutely involve you know, visits to traditional um, Chinese medicine practitioners, visits to some of the shops where they sell herbal tonics uh, for men to kind of improve their virility and, and the like, um, perhaps a visit to a, a, a someone who could uh, tell, tell something about their futures or a temple, um, uh, and increasingly also biomedical fertility uh, centers. Um, so a lot of my colleagues around the world um, have been um, doing really kind of exemplary work, exemplary work when it comes to following these uh, quests for conception. And you know, really in the last, especially 10, 10 to 20 years, we've just seen an explosion in the number of ethnographies uh, following couples who are struggling with infertility. And uh, in the the kind this, in this approach. Um, the, the emphasis, of course, is on the, the lived experience of the couples, so how they suffer, and there's a lot of suffering with infertility. Uh, this we know from around the world. And indeed, in those countries which are often seen as, you know, overpopulated and, you know, um, if anything, have no need for new babies because there's too many babies, right? Those are often the countries where the stigmatization and the suffering is the, the strongest because um, that you cannot have a, a child in a cultural context where having many children is, is really a marker of all kinds of things, really can intensify that stigmatization. Um, it, you know, in a Danish context, I have to uh, mention the work of uh, Tina Chanhoi, who uh, used to be with us, uh, is nowadays just down the road at SDU, but in, in Copenhagen. You know, really she was one of the pioneers, uh, also internationally, in terms of doing just amazing, her PhD called Tilblimses Historia, um, the stories of becoming, uh, was for me really one of the, the pioneer ethnographies, um, you know, alongside people like Sarah Franklin and Marsha Inhorn, who also internationally have been uh, pioneering the field. Um, uh, she, she was really, for me, a, a huge inspiration in terms of um, the ways in which we can ask questions about infertility. The other way you can do it, um, I'm here I'm thinking about Charis Thompson's work, uh, Making Parents, and uh, Liz Roberts, Elizabeth Roberts' work, God's Laboratory, or indeed Trudy Garrett's work, 
um, um, in, from the Netherlands where they go into the clinic. So not so much following the, the itineraries of, of the couples who are suffering and, and, and going, you know, uh, experiencing stigmatization, but the ways in which all the, as Charis puts it, the kind of ontological choreographies that take place in a clinic making uh, fertility treatment, which is a very intense uh, process, especially when IVF is involved, uh, which involves women taking uh, hormones to produce uh, a stimulation of uh, egg production and then the, you know, the extraction of them, the fertilization and then the implantation again. Uh, so that kind of clinic-centered ethnography or hospital ethnography would be another possible approach to um, uh, studying um, as anthropologists studying uh, infertility. Now, in many ways, um, my ethnography contains both of these aspects, the experiences of some of the couples that I met um, and also the daily life at the clinic. But in fact, I would say it does differ um, uh, in uh, the following way, that I made uh, as the object of my study the making of a specific technology. That's what I wanted to generate insights, ethnographic insights into. So not so much these lived experiences of the patients, um, and not so much the actual choreographies and work that's being done uh, at the clinics to enable these uh, couples hopefully to have babies because you know the success rates are still um, uh, very very um, much not in the favor of couples even to this day although they are uh, improving so if it's the making of a medical technology which is the object of my research that of, of course uh, requires methodological uh, attention because, you know, uh, you know, again, thinking of Tina's work, uh, Tina Gamutov, who I've worked very closely with, you know, to do that kind of lived experience, um, in her case, uh, looking at selective reproduction in, in Vietnam, really requires a very unique and particular skill. And that is really getting to know one's informants, really getting those under their skin, intimate uh, access to their life stories. And that is a skill I do not have. I wish I did, um, but hopefully I have another set of skills which, which uh, exactly in kind of um, supple supplemental ways uh, can generate other kinds of insights. And that's what my kind of argument is, that we need lived experience ethnographies, we need hospital ethnographies, and hopefully with this book I can be part of making a case for um, uh, the kind of need for ethnographies which really take the technologies themselves as the object of study. And here, of course, I'm in dialogue with science and technology studies, but still I would say and insist that anthropology has a very, very particular uh, role to play within this very broad field of STS, as it's known, because it is an interdisciplinary field and every discipline obviously brings with it its uh, methodological uh, particularities. So, um, in terms of why I started this project, cut the long story short, after my PhD, was, which was focused on traditional medicine in Vietnam, I got this job on an EU project focusing on ethics in biomedical research, especially when um, uh, Chinese <coughs> and European uh, life scientists collaborate. And one of the, the participants in that project turned out to be uh, Professor Lu Guangzhou, who's a, a major figure in the book, who runs this clinic. Um, and in 2007, because I was part of the project, I visited her clinic for the first time. And this is what uh, I met and have met since every single time I go there. And this, by, you know, I was a newcomer to China, a newcomer to uh, fertility uh, and infertility as a field, uh, just getting started. But this, what met me, just jarred. And I describe it very vividly in the opening kind of pages. It jarred because at that point, what did I know? I knew that China is a place 
a country which is infamous for doing everything in its powers to prevent babies being born. <laughs> and here you had literally a, 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 a mass production of babies. It's, a ma I mean, on a scale which is hitherto unimaginable. So these are the, the numbers. And I, I came into the picture around 2007. So I've literally followed this um, because I've been going back doing, as Michael has uh, taught us, this kind of episodic, uh, um, Michael White has written this brilliant chapter on episodic fieldwork, where, you know, the returns, the constant returns allows you to experience the history, right, you know, just by the mere fact of returning. So every time I went back, there was more and more patients um, getting um, treatment. So just to put this into perspective, by 2016, they, in one building, in this building that I just showed you, they were carrying out 40,000 cycles, so treatment rounds, in one building, and that's about 25% of all cycles done in the US uh, annually. And this is just one building, right? So you can imagine, I mean, this is just on an astounding scale. So already here, in terms of um, trying to understand what is fertility treatment, what are these medical technologies, you cannot not be um, attending to this matter of scale and, and the sheer kind of size of, of operations. And why did I choose male infertility and sperm banks? Well, to be honest, uh, for gendered methodological reasons. I thought it would be, and indeed it, it proved to be so, easier as a male uh, researcher to come into a new field um, in a way where I would be uh, hanging out, so to say, with sperm donors who are men, um, talking about you know, masturbation and uh, you know, uh, sexuality and things like that. Um, and I'm not saying that you cannot do you know, cross-gender uh, research on these matters, but for sure that has allowed me to um, uh, approach the field in a way that perhaps I felt most comfortable, maybe that was the, the key issue, I felt more comfortable uh, discussing these issues with um, uh, so-called fellow, fellow uh, gendered <laughs> uh, male subjects. Um, so that was the choice. And uh, it turned out to be rather um, um, fortuitous in the sense that Sperm banking, in fact, is the least controversial in quotation marks because, uh, and there are all kinds of taboos, and I'll get that into that in a second, but all things equal, there are less risks involved with um, sperm donation compared to IVF or egg donation because you're not extracting eggs. You're, you're, you're masturbating, right? So the, the medical risks, let's put it like that, are less. And that meant that my access was much less guarded because... Reproduction in China, of course, is a very sensitive issue because of the international criticism that they have received for their one-child policy. Let's face it, forced sterilizations, forced abortions have been uh, an issue which have been uh, you know, showing up uh, once in a while. So there have been massive human costs to the one-child policy in China. And you know, there are many people also within China who have been uh, emphasizing this through the years. So the question based on all of this, uh, um, these kinds of my, my way into the field that I posed myself was that here I came to a setting where uh, the, you know, this mass production of babies when it came to IVF and when it came to sperm banking, it was a completely established practice by 2007. Um, and it was taking place in a country which, again, was you know, infamous for its efforts to prevent babies born. So I posed it, you know, perhaps a simple question, but I think an important question to ask. How has routinized sperm banking become possible in China? So it's a historical question, but it's also an ethnographic question. And this is the way that I've been doing anthropology basically throughout my career always asking the question of how something becomes possible, and that in, implies process. 
So I, in my um, inaugural uh, lecture, when I uh, got my professor MSO, I proposed an anthropology of isations. And as many of you know, I've come from a background where social uh, science uh, more broadly, so sociology has also played a big role. So that connection of the big picture with these micro events really in the clinic, in, among the families has really been important for me you know, throughout my career. And asking these kinds of questions, I believe, allow us then to um, explore that connection between the big picture and then you know, the everyday kind of uh, uh, events that take place um, uh, involving certain uh, persons and, and relations and, and families and the like. So these three questions, sub-questions, are basically a way that I you know, always tend to layer um, everything that I've done. So uh, before I, I started working in fertility, I was working in traditional medicine and basically asking similar kinds of uh, questions in Vietnam. How did it become possible for the Vietnamese state to uh, both promote and mobilize traditional herbal medicine as something that can solve public health problems in, in Vietnam? So I took that kind of um, uh, sensibility with me to this question to understand and you know this historical quirk in the in that you know that I used to kind of frame this in terms of a country doing everything to prevent birth I think provided a kind of productive way to to try to uh, challenge self, self evidences and that's you know really one of my kind of personal um, drives is always whenever I meet something that is established routinized where there are convictions at stake I become very cu curious. So these three layers, there's a kind of socio-historical process going on. And methodologically, that means that I have to somehow uh, engage with um, kind of national level discourses, uh, legislation, um, you know, the ways in which experts are formulating uh, whether or not infertility is a problem that needs to be addressed. What style of sperm banking has emerged in China as a result? That's at the level of the sperm bank, the everyday routines and practices that are going on. And then finally, um, how has, in this case, artificial insemination by donor, so the use of bank, banked sperm, so to say, become an acceptable reproductive technology in China. So routinization involves all three um, levels. And the outset, um, uh, and where I place my study, of course, is in, in, in connection to all these studies that I also started out um, highlighting. Um, you know, there's a rich literature out there. But the thing I noticed from the beginning is that uh, you know, also our colleague anthropologists, when they ha have been kind of describing reproductive technologies in the so-called global south, so outside the west, globalization was the key ethnographic uh, trope. So this was a case of, well, the quotes are there, right? So western technologies which then diffuse out into the world. And of course, each of these scholars is really attentive to, to, to the adaptations and the ways in which the uptake of the technologies always has a specific form. But I was never satisfied with that. I think that remains, it, it keeps us with a, a, you know, a kind of, uh, well, honestly, a Eurocentric, um, Euro-American centric idea that, you know, the technology is something that, you know, is invented and developed in the, the, the rich global north and then kind of spreads out. And in the book, I really try to show that, you know, it doesn't really matter where a technology is invented. And, and, and I think this is the case wherever we are in the world. It doesn't matter where it's invented because at the end of the day, if it's going to be routinized, People in the country have to um, uh, innovate, they have to you know, uh, make uh, their systems work, they have to scale up and all these kinds of things. So m the way I try to describe it is you have to tell the story from the perspective, for example, of the sperm bank at the moment where the international experts who've been there to train leave and go back to their, their nations. Somebody stays behind 
and somebody, uh, you know, from janitors upwards who clean the, the, the facilities um, to the, you know, the, the people who are filling the, the, the cryotanks with liquid nitrogen to the donors, of course. Somebody's left, be left behind, in quotation marks, if we are, were to use this analytic. So why not routinization? Routinization is not just something that we study in the West. We should study routinization wherever we are. I don't think globalization by default should be the trope when we're talking about global south. Because there's just as much globalization, by the way, when we study reproductive technologies in Denmark. They go to France and even China these days, even in quotation marks, China these days, to learn. So why wouldn't Chinese scholars go and travel around the world to learn more about uh, technology? So that's kind of the, the, the setting within which I, I place the study and, and kind of critique and question whether globalization should be the the trope as soon as we talk about technology in the South. I think routinization should be the, the trope regardless of where we are in, in the world. And then just briefly, um, uh, you know, very much in tune with Jiang Lijing's wonderful kind of historical work on, on development of IVF in Beijing especially, and Jia Chen Fu who's done work on the development, I don't know if you, many of you may have heard that uh, the treatment of malaria, um, one of the most effective treatments, is based on kind of Chinese herbal medicine. So uh, Jia Chen Fu has kind of uh, done um, historical work on kind of indigenous science in, in China. So that's kind of the, the approach that I adopted. It was asking the story of how these technologies were made in China. So the making of sperm banking in China, that's really a, a, a crucial point. So. This is what I'm suggesting. We need to reorient our analyses to routinization processes regardless of where, in this case, sperm banking and insemination treatments were invented. And as said, I have these three kind of levels uh, that I operate on. And uh, the socio-historical processes, the daily practices, where you know routines become habituated, and this kind of normalization in daily life. So if uh, sperm banking is to be normal, uh, routinized, then it just has to be something that is within the kind of uh, realistic um, um, uh, repertoire of options that people who have uh, male fertility within a couple are kind of thinking about. And I propose in the book to call what I do assemblage ethnography, not necessarily because we need a new, you know, um, uh, kind of fancy label for a new way of doing ethnography, because I think plenty of people have been doing this this for many, many years. But um, surprisingly, no one has necessarily thought through this, uh, the implications in, t in terms of writing about, well, what does that mean for ethnography that we have these layers that we're, we're uh, 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 kind of involving ourselves in? And uh, many of you will know the, the anti-politics mach machine by Jim Ferguson. For me, that's the first assemblage ethnography. Uh, he didn't call it that, but he was not studying how people experience development. Um, he, was he was studying the, the development apparatus, the machinery uh, in, in uh, Botswana, in his, his case. Um, uh, sorry, Lesotho, right? I always mix these two countries, yeah. Um, uh, uh, so in my case, eight years of episodic fieldwork, uh, going back and forth, uh, 10 trips lasting between three months and two weeks. Um, and I, you know, to get across these three layers, interviews with pioneer reproductive technologies, uh, of reproductive technologies, um, participant observation in China's oldest and largest sperm bank and fertility clinic, uh, interviews with sperm bank staff, uh, donors, infertile couples, and then just as importantly are the documents in assemblage ethnography. So the laws, regulations, scientific reports, and also media reports 
because um, media reports help us to understand how things become issues, right, as opposed to uh, just something one talks about. And all of that in service of this overall question, how has routinized banking become possible? Um, it was a difficult birth. These are some of the earliest pictures. And you predictably, predictably uh, this is Professor Lu Guangzhou, one of the pioneers in Shangsha, with her father, who was a medical geneticist, one of the first in China. Um, you know, predictably, Zhang Lijiu was her competitor, so to say. They were competing to have the first IVF baby, which they're, as you can see, celebrating the 30th year of. They met resistance. They were developing these technologies in the 80s at a time where the huge population was on the agenda. They were told, why are you doing this? We don't need more babies. Uh, you shouldn't you be investing your resources in, uh, you know, uh, contraception or other kinds of health priorities. So they did meet that. And to cut the long story short, which is chronicled in the book, uh, basically, Professor Liu, who was working in Hunan province, where I've been, she was banned in the 1990s and by law forbidden uh, to, to uh, work with humans. So she started working with pandas instead. Pandas are infamous for not uh, uh, making uh, uh, panda cubs. So she used IVF to, to help them. Uh, in the 90s, but she finally convinced her local province and since then from that local legislation that then became national legislation. And this was her reasoning. I told them that in my opinion, the population policy requires that every family has one child, but this is for fertile couples. Then you have one child, but for infertile couples, we should also help them to have one healthy baby. So this is the real population policy. I told them that our population policy should be based on this idea that every family should have one healthy baby, not only fertile, but also infertile couples. So this is fair to every family. So this was the reasoning that we can do this, but within the framework of the one-child policy. So now when you go, you have to have your marriage certificate and your pregnancy certificate. In China, to have a baby legally, you have to have a pregnancy certificate signed by your employer. Um, so you have to present that at the clinic. So it's kind of one-child IVF, I call it in the book. Um, and all of this is taking place at a time where it's not just population growth, it's also explicitly improving population quality. And this is, you know, for European, uh, a European historical context, this is seen as very controversial, <coughs> eugenic, and um, uh, this sense that we should be doing things to improve the entire population's um, uh, um, quality, as well as restricting its quantity. So in the book, I talk about China's re restrictive reproductive complex, and really I understand it as this total set of laws, regulations, family planning institutions, campaigns, etc., which focus on birth quantity. So that's assisted reproduction when you are addressing the fact of having a baby or not, and termination, of course, abortion, but also quality. And that's the work I've done together with Tina on uh, selective reproduction. And that's about uh, ensuring that the baby is the best possible baby, the healthiest baby, the um, also uh, hopefully intelligent, as I will get into. Um, so controlling population growth and improving population quality are the two rationales that organize this reproductive complex in China. Second level, daily grind. So you can see here, my informants in China claim that I have a role to play in the fact that they're up on screening of 6,000. I don't believe them, but they have suggested to me that I have helped them uh, improve their, their stats. Um, so if you, if you do the maths, this basically means 100 samples delivered per day, every single day. Um, and I describe this very vividly in the book. It makes for some pretty um, unique socialities at the sperm bank. 80 guys waiting in a room like this for their turn to <laughs> masturbate. Yeah? 
Uh, and this is totally different from Denmark or US where it's much more low key. And the major reason for that is that they have limited one donor to five um, uh, uh, pregnancies or five women uh, uh, and nowadays you can then have two so potentially that's ten babies because everyone could in principle use a, a donor twice right but five women only and why because they are very very uh, worried about potential unwitting consanguineous marriage that people who are half sisters or brothers meet and they don't know and then they end up getting married and that has genetic consequences potentially in terms of uh, disease we were talking about that earlier um, so genetic disease in consanguineous families is a known kind of uh, potential consequence. So they're very, very concerned about that. And five is seen as very internationally restrictive. It used to be 25 in Denmark. There's only 5 million in Denmark. It used to be 25. They've just brought that down to 12. But still, 12 in Denmark. Uh, and then what Danish sperm banks do is they export to France. So it's 12 in Denmark, 12 in France, 12 in Spain. So one donor in Denmark can potentially have you know, 50, 60 children. 50, 60 families out there, right? In China, it's only five. And uh, that explains why it's high throughput, because they need to screen that many because they run out of a donor much quicker than a, a European sperm bank would. So the daily grind is totally different from a, a Danish, American, or any other uh, country indeed, because of that five uh, ch child limit. And the only way we can account for that limitation is by, again, trying to understand this uh, entrenchment of the routinization within the complex. So just to give you a sense, they go out to these uh, campuses, try to canvas uh, uh, donors to come to their sperm bank. They especially go to their dorms and pass out flyers uh, to convince them. Um, they travel around the cities. Uh, uh, they call themselves one of these, my informants described him, themselves as the worker bees using this uh, <laughs> metaphor of, of going to a field, collecting the pollen. When it's finished, you go to the next field. And this is the kind of sperm mobile that they do, do it all in. Yeah. So a lot of fun doing the, the research as well. Many, if you've heard me talk, uh, you've probably seen this slide before, but this is one of the flyers. There are many different flyers where they're, they're uh, explicitly appealing to the, the high quality um, uh, university students, right? And saying that, you know, if you come and donate, you can participate in our goal of improving Chinese, uh, the Chinese population's quality. Imagine, you know, translating this into Danish, it would be, you know, on the front of all the tabloids because this is taboo in, for, you know, historical reasons. So this is, again, so important that we do the ethnographic work as well to kind of locate why and how these kinds of flyers are totally acceptable and totally uncontroversial and totally, um, uh, let's say, um, uh, normal and normalized. Um, so you arrive at the sperm bank, um, provide your... your um, uh, sample and then it's quality controlled and this is very much in line with excellent yeah very much in line with what um, you know sperm banks around the world do the difference being this high throughput so these people sitting at the bench are seeing a hundred samples coming in a day whereas in Denmark they would see maybe uh, between 12 and maybe 20 samples uh, a day coming in um, or, or the like I'm sure they have busier days than that as well but but there's a huge scale difference and the qualified sperm then ends, ends in the tank and then finally uh, the third layer is the kind of everyday um, use um, uh, and everyday kind of donation. So I spent a lot of time with the donors uh, talking to them about, you know, what they think about it and, and why they're doing it. And, you know, the kind of, in some ways, classic um, uh, questions that anthropologists might pursue. And in the final chapter, I kind of make this point that, that on the part of both couples 
who are pursuing the use of uh, donor sperm and donors, the key um, common uh, interest is trouble avoidance. Not, not, neither the couple nor the donor wants any trouble down the line. So as this donor is saying here, you know, probably only not, over 90% of donors would never tell their parents, especially when I've gradu graduated from university, even several years later, I think confidentiality will be very important. If I have my own family at that time, it should be confidential anonymous. If the confidentiality work is not so good, once the child gets to know that, if something happens, he or she got to know about this information through some way, if they came to us, this will do harm to my own family. This will be hard to explain as well. So it's very important. If it is possible that they find out, it will not only do harm to my own family, it will cause very, very many troubles. I think I don't want any uh, questions in and around me and my wife, my children. So this sense that this would dis disturb and disrupt the kinds of uh, filialities and the kinds of family ties and relations that they see themselves um, engaging in. And then um, these are just uh, quotes which honestly probably could be from anywhere in, in the world. Um, uh, which, you know, these are two infertile men who are describing how um, difficult um, receiving the diagnosis was and how difficult it was to make that choice to, to pursue uh, donor sperm. So there's nothing I can do anyway. This thing was destined to be, my life is doomed and this cannot be changed. It would be best to be able to cure, so his infertility, but this medicine is not so developed. I did consider adoption, but my wife didn't approve. She has hopes for us to have our own baby. My wife's parents only know that we are having treatment by artificial insemination, but they don't know we are using other people's sperm. And again, their rationales are, we don't want any trouble. They can know that we're getting assistance, but they cannot know that it's uh, uh, donor sperm. Um, with similar kinds of reasonings that, that people will start gossiping, they'll start talking if, if, if this comes out. So we really have to keep this confidential and uh, uh, secret. So this argument that, is this normalized? Is it norm, like normal for use? And again, if you've heard me talk, you've seen this case before. I won't go through all the details, but basically this is a couple where the, the, the father and mother of a man with the wife come to the clinic and ask for donor sperm. And it transpires during the consultations that it's because they, the parents think that their son is, is kind of intellectually, uh, cognitively um, disadvantaged and uh, not so smart and a little bit ugly. So they would prefer a donor sperm. And the, the reason I take the case is that, you know, this is just a, a kind of a so-called so common family that, you know, the fact that they at all bring assisted insemination by donor into their family strategies of reproduction is kind of in some ways testament to that this is pretty normalized. I mean, if they're strategizing on how to improve the stock of their family in this way and, you know, voluntarily showing up at a sperm bank and asking specifically for donor sperm because apparently there was nothing wrong with the, the husband's sperm as such. Um, uh, but in this case, the, the, the grandparents, so future grandparents were asking for, for donation. So rather normalized. To understand the making of medical technologies in China or anywhere else for that matter, I think we really need to move beyond analyses of technology transfer, export, import, uh, and adaptation, which again, surprisingly, I found very much to be the, the case within anthropology as well. And we should really an analyze these routinization processes from within and do so by pursuing these, what I call site multiplied assemblage ethnographies as a supplement to the, you know, these wonderful ethnographies of lived experience. Um, because I think both uh, stories are so important if we are to understand um, infertility in China. Thank you.
very much, Ayo. Um, and Lara, if you'd like to yes. move up. So, thank you, Ayo, and thank you, Janet uh, and Sissel, for inviting me to be a discussion. I have uh, today three points for discussion. I would like to talk about assessing quality mm -hmm. and assigning citizenship as the first. And as the second, I'd like to talk a little bit about the implications of borrowing sperm, which is the title of your sixth chapter. And finally, I'd like to ask you about the stories you, you can't tell, um, maybe the no-go stories for ethical reasons. Yes, so. Um, but I'd like to begin with the assessing quality and assigning citizenships because the title of your book is Good Quality. And as you said, <clears throat> we should not think about the spread of technology as a global process. And I think that I would like to bring together China and Denmark a little bit closer <laughs> through the concept of assigning citizenship. For three years, I did a study on life and death decision making in a Danish neonatal intensive care unit. That is a place where infants are born extremely prematurely. Um, as early as week 23, that's more than three months early. And our research interest was actually to answer the question of how, how we practice and understand and experience lives worth living in Denmark today. And I tried to answer that question by studying the negotiations of life and death around these very premature events. So <clears throat> when I read your book, I, I came to think about the image you give in the laboratory mm -hmm. of the staff assessing the vitality mm -hmm. of the sperm cells uh, that somehow, in a very strange way, mm -hmm. resonates with what happens when an infant is born extremely prematurely mm -hmm. and you have to decide, should we go all in with treatments? Is this child uh, viable? Yeah. <clears throat> So they would say that they assess viability in the clinic. Yeah. Um, and during my PhD, I, I tried to experiment with seeing these processes as also a, a way of assigning citizenship uh, to, to infants in yeah. this case. And, and I think there might be some interesting comparisons in, in these processes. Uh, so what I saw in the NICU was that um, Sometimes, in these moments of having to decide, should we treat, should we stop treatment, should we let this child go, the, the ability of the parents became an issue. Mm. And this is where I, I wanted to ask you, because you have these beautiful uh, examples of how the, the pregnancy certificate mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. marriage certificate plays a role yeah. in in uh, allowing you to have kids, and um, and what I see in in the Danish context is that you you have to prove somehow parentability in, in the and that is to to stretch it far, but but sometimes when it's really on the border or it's it's a gray zone decision, they come into they become important these parentability. So I just wonder if in your uh, ethnography, does that, does that play any role, the, the parentability? Is that, does that ever enter as a, 
as an issue. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's written in the Chinese law that um, if a clinician is to uh, assess and conclude that a certain couple is unsuitable for reproduction, that they cannot offer them fertility treatment. Mm -hmm. And that um, is then related to um, relatively specific conditions, so a lot of mental disease. Mm. Um, people who are considered not to be able to look after themselves, which then ties into the parent's ability. Yeah. So um, the contrast, of course, is the, the, you know, the, the clinic is the place where these high-quality university students who are donors, who are in some ways cast as the ideal parents, right? Mm. The, the most fit to, to that's why they should come and donate. So both biologically, but also their social qualities, comes into contact mm. with um, the people who are at the lower end in terms of their sperm quality. But that also, that stigmatization of having, you know, being infertile, mm. unavoidably then is kind of um, translated into a, a kind of a moral assessment of, of, of the person. So uh, there's a reason why you have, you know, um, low quality sperm. It would never be articulated in that way. And, you know, this is a medical assessment and uh, the, the like. But... Mm. Um, the kinds of stigmatizations that surround uh, male infertility absolutely have to do also with uh, yeah, issues of citizenship and who to, to let in. Um, uh, so the question then becomes whether male infertility is um, a, so, a, an accident you know, that caused by a, a, an illness, for example, in, in childhood, or whether it's genetic. And as soon as mm. it's considered genetic, then the parent abilities come, come into the mix. So you definitely see it. And it's indeed in the law that that, that assessment is carried out by clinicians. And should they deem a couple not? And indeed, that ethical case that I showed, that was the ethical mm. debate they were having. Is this couple uh, able to uh, raise a child? Um, that was part of the assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what I like to talk about the next issue is this with the the implications of borrowing sperm, mm -hmm. and it is actually uh, related to this analogy of of the sperm bank as a bank. So when I read your chapter six, I was really uh, intrigued by by this um, the title of of borrowing sperm because you you say that. This is the, the part where you, where you try to show that, that the use of sperm banks is normalized and accepted. Yeah. And at the same time, you describe these processes of uh, avoiding trouble. Yeah. And uh, so, so I kept struggling with, so do they actually accept? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but it made me think that the term borrowing, yeah. it has connotations to a more a near relation yeah. than, for example, buying or mm -hmm. uh, getting or uh, so. So I was, mm. I was curious uh, because it, it it somehow implies a closer relationship when you borrow something. Normally, you borrow something from your friends, or family, yeah. neighbors, yeah. and they somehow it's it's implicit that you will someday give something back. And so it, I really like this term and I, but I'm, it, it keeps uh, popping up with questions of so so what does it do to your analysis here 
uh, again, thinking about the, the banking analogy is mm -hmm. perfect because you, you have this yeah. this argument about how the sperm bank is a national sanctuary yeah. of reproductive vitality yeah. Yeah. and so it's it's a perfect uh, example of how the, the nation really sees these mm. in a sperm crisis situation here we have the future secured we can we have the the, the good sperm here yeah. Yeah. in case of everybody else Apocalypse. being exposed to <laughs> yes radiation yes. pollution and that's that's just very uh, yeah, yeah. I, I totally get it yeah. Yeah. but then when you use the words borrowing, yeah. of course that is again the transaction between the customer and the bank. And, but what's what's going to be that? So that's my question. So so what do you mean? Uh, what 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 can you unfold a little bit? What the term borrowings implies about the relationship about between citizens and nation? Yeah, um, yeah. No, I'm I'm just thinking it through. So it, it's an emic term. It's it was one of the expressions used in the field, and I wouldn't say by all, but it, it, probably that's why it became the title of the chapter, because it struck me as well yeah. when I heard it. Um, and the, 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 the one, one thing I'm quite, how to say this, well, not how to say it, I'm, I'm very proud of um, one of the impacts that I had. I think I read about it a bit in the book that, um, you know, the, this massive clinic, uh, they, they welcomed an anthropologist. I've been going there for 10 years, and so I've been presenting my work a lot through the years. And um, just this whole idea of presenting, you know, many of us have this experience, like qualitative data as evidence, right? That was new for them, they were med medical practitioners. And so they, all of a sudden, they had all these quotes from their donors that they've never, you know, they've never really wondered about what the donors are thinking. Of course they have. Um, but they do surveys and they do satisfaction. Um, so, you know, throwing these co quotes up was quite uh, uh, transformative. And so at some point, uh, some of the donors are saying, well, actually, we'd like to know a bit more about, you know, what happens with the sperm and, you know, who uses them. And uh, so I was presenting the data. And the next time I come back, they've made this massive billboard with a lot of letters from the mothers especially, okay. saying thank you to the donors. Mm, yeah. So that's where it came through, that these mothers were, were giving something back and they realized that if we, if we present this, like, you know, anonymized and everything, to the donors, then the donors will see how they get something back. Mm. I mean, they're told it all the time that you will contribute, you will make people happy, but here they could see it, that yeah. these were mothers uh, giving back. So the borrowing... I think comes through that that sense of indebtedness that, yes. that we you know you made this possible, you allowed us to to make this borrow, mm -hmm. <laughs> this uh, this loan, yeah. uh, and as a as a consequence we've had um, our family. But you're right in terms of, well, they 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 cannot because it's anonymous and so forth ever give anything back specifically to mm -hmm. the single donor who was their donor, mm -hmm. but in this way they were you know sending their thanks and those letters. They weren't for that reason. They get the letters all the time. They get, you know, people send them letters, you know, profusely thanking and emotional. So, you know, they have stacks and stacks of happy uh, customers, happily, so to say. But there's, of course, and we should never forget all those cases where they don't end up having a baby, which are um, probably not sending no. uh, letters in the same way. If, if they are, it's probably another kind of letter. But yeah, so that it came through the field. Um, but you're right. I, I don't think. Um, 
I, I, I could have unfolded the, the term much more in the analysis um, than I do as it stands right now in the chapter. Maybe, so. Or maybe it is good that it evokes various yeah. images of what it might mean. But, yeah. but I, I think also that <coughs> it could mean that, uh, yeah, um, that it could say something about the relationship between the citizen getting help Yeah. in the sperm bank and the nation state. Yeah. So, and that that is also the case in in the NICU where I did field work, yeah. where they, the the clinicians would often talk about in the future these children will come back to us and say thank you for being happy about their lives, yeah. and they would be able to. Well, that was a discussion. Would they be able to contribute to society? And and considering the title of your book and the. Mm -hmm. And the whole uh, population poli political project, yeah. I, I would assume that this state would Absolutely. also want the, that the thing to return is also a healthy child yeah. that will provide, uh, that Absolutely. will contribute to society. So that was just a, yeah. a different layer. Absolutely. Okay, so let's uh, spend the last uh, five minutes on talking about the stories. What kind of stories have you not been able to tell? So. As I kind of introduced, so I've done an ethnographic study of the making of a specific medical technology. Uh, you know, the final chapter, of course, is um, these very kind of in, you know, experience near uh, accounts from both donors and, and uh, couples using the... So I, I wouldn't say I have that many um, stories from the everyday lives of the people because, you know, for sure there are, you know, especially those where... Um, I do talk a little bit about the kind of violence in hospitals because you know things can fail and they can get frustrated and they've paid a lot of money. So this is what I'm getting at, the money issue, right? This story, I don't think, first of all, I will ever get complete access to. Um, and second of all, what I do know, I would never be able to publish. It's big business. So it's mass production of babies. 40,000 cycles. Each cycle costs about 40,000 kroners. We can do the maths. Um, And, you know, this question of how many cycles should you do, the record I heard was 16. And, you know, at what point should doctors be saying, listen, maybe there are other things that it would make sense for, for, for you to be doing. And the question is whether finance is playing a role. And of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. So this is something that I will be pursuing in future studies, because through this 10-year research, I now have a completely different kind of confidence and trust from, from the collaborators, and I have to find ways in which to write about it because it has to be written about. Mm. So I think our time is just about up, but that was a fascinating discussion. Does anyone have a burning question that they would like to put to our discussion? Yeah. Well, thank you to IOL for a really lovely uh, and very exciting presentation and I think for Laura for making it so clear why the two of you are in conversation and it was just a really good one. Thanks. And uh, I want to hijack at least one of your uh, questions, Laura, uh, because I thought that the issue of death mm -hmm. is extremely mm -hmm. interesting here and I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you whether you could elaborate a little Yeah. And say which other forms of moral debt is there uh, at play here? Uh, and in terms of, I think both between the citizens and the state, 
but also in terms of future generations of good quality. If you could sort of push it, say, 50 years onwards or something. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. The other one is, why is this assemblage ethnography mm -hmm. and not apparatus ethnography? Mm. And is there a difference? Yeah. Um, so a lot of indebtedness and forms of indebtedness and um, well, the, before I get to the moral debts, um, these itineraries that I, I started out mm -hmm. talking about how anthropologists typically can typically go about studying these things, those itineraries are really expensive. So, you know, because insemination, which I focused on, is relatively cheap. It's about 3,000 kroners, which is a lot, but still within reach much more than IVF, which is 40,000. So there's a big uh, jump. So at the IVF clinic, there's that middle class thing going on. Although it has to be said, even you know, very uh, um, resource poor families will do a lot to, to. So a lot of these families and the men that I met, you know, and, and again, this is very um, similar to other ethnographies from around the world. It's just human tragedies, right? These people have done everything. They've been cheated along the way. They've been sold you know, miracle cures that they believed in. And, you know, the, the sums that, well, at least one of the families uh, out of the 12 couples I spoke with had spent 100,000 Danish kroners. Now, that's a lot for anyone, but, you know, this family was clearly not from a middle class when I spoke to them. So, you know, everything that person and that couple has ever earned is going to this. So the indebtedness that um, is linked to the stigmatization, to the... Um, to the itineraries is, is massive. Um, no, no insurance covers fertility treatment at all in China, so even if you have a plan, you, you're, you're paying out of pocket. So that's the one thing. And then <clears throat> the moral indebtedness. So there's the, the as you said, borrowing kind of uh, intimates a certain form of closeness and that feeling of, of uh, wanting to reach out to the donor to, to kind of say thanks or um, feeling... A, 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 uh, indebtedness towards them, but what I also try to chronicle in the chapter is there's a, there's a kind of economy of knowing around the visit to the so it's not secrets as such it's managing who knows what and with male infertility what happens is is that it's the man's family who's involved because you would never tell the woman's family as as the quote showed because then your family is of less value because it's a man's problem and there would be pressure from the other family for divorce and all kinds of things. And, you know, as one of the, the, the doctors, uh, you know, so poignantly puts it, you know, women in China and probably all over the world are so much more tolerant than men in a gendered sense because if the woman has the problem, so to say, men, you know, almost immediately will divorce. And now I'm saying this way too, um, you know, black and white, but... All things equal, men will leave and they will split, they will get themselves a new wife. Whereas the doctor was saying that, you know, she sees thousands of patients every year, that she sees these women who are just tolerating and not tolerating, they're genuinely in love and feeling concern for their. So they will stick with their man much more than is the, the case the other way around. So that means that there's that sense on the man's side that they feel gratitude, a debt to their wife for sticking around. Because they, you know, they're feeling more and more sad and depressed and suicidal thoughts, the whole works, because they can't give that one thing, which is the baby, right? So there's that indebtedness, which totally changes the dynamic of a marriage. Um, and then the managing who knows what, um, 
very often they say, uh, and I observed this in a few of the occasions, the, and indeed the, the, the kind of far out case in some ways with the, the parents of the man attending. So it's the sister of the, the man, or someone will be with the woman at these consultations. So that sense of, again, uh, indebtedness to, to the families that this is a man's problem, we keep this within the man's, man's family. Um, so you're absolutely right, the, the kind of debt becomes constitutive of the forms of relations that are emerging around these technologies. Because if before these technologies were available, the, you know, the, the only thing you could do, and I heard stories of you know, old school donation, was that you arranged for somebody else to sleep with the woman, because that was donation, right? Um, and the woman had nothing to say, would, would, would do, so, so to say, which is a whole another kind of um, form of indebtedness and, and um, yeah, violence. Um, so, uh, excellent point. Moral debt and the sense of indebtedness is really constitutive in this, this field. Um, why not apparatus ethnography? Well, the, in, in a footnote, I say that actually I should call it apparatus ethnography, but... Um, in terms of the, what I'm doing as an ethnographer, for me, assemblage makes more sense because I'm assembling the, uh, the materials, right? I'm getting the legislations, I'm doing the interviews, the observations, I'm co you know, collecting a media data, data re um, um, uh, making a kind of media story database. So I'm assembling together what for me represents the reproductive complex, right? So all those documents the observations, the protocols that I collected, the scientific articles, are what constitutes the uh, uh, apparatus. So it comes from dispositif in the French, so I'm, you know, for anyone who knows me comes, knows that I come from the kind of post-structuralist tradition. So it's the dispositif which has been translated into the apparatus mm -hmm. and is sometimes spoken as of this assemblage or ensemble of, of constituted parts. So I elected... Uh, mainly because I thought it reflected what I was doing as the ethnographer. I was assembling this data set um, as an active strategy. So it's n not just, and I'm, 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 I mean this as you heard, I have you know, the most wonderful collaborations with Tina because we supplement each other, right? So I'm not just, in quotation mark, collecting lived experience, inner world uh, stories. I'm collecting this set which allows me to say something about a making and that is, requires um, um, this set of documents, which I don't see as superior to other forms of documents, but as necessary to the questions that I ask. Um, so that's my, uh, my answer, is that it reflected uh, what I was doing as the ethnographer in the field. Thank you from all of us. It was a real pleasure to listen to the conversation and be part of it. This podcast is produced by the Anthropological Association of Denmark. Today you heard the recordings of the monographic Happy Hour with Ayo Velberg and Laura Indale-Naune discussing Ayo's monograph titled Good Quality. The event was held on the 22nd of October 2018 in Ethnographic Exploratory at Copenhagen University. Make sure to subscribe to Anthropologenings podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud where we will soon launch our new portrait series on influential Danish anthropologists. Also stay tuned for future events on the association's Facebook page and gain more insights to the work of Anthropologening on our website at anthropologening.dk. Thank you for listening. Og til de danske lyttere, er du ikke allerede medlem af Anthropologening Danmark, så kan du blive det i dag 
ved at tilmelde dig foreningen på vores hjemmeside. Den finder du på www.antropologforeningen.dk Tak fordi du lyttede med.